What's the right and rational way of thinking about money? And what's the wrong or irrational way of thinking about money? These are the questions we're going to explore in this interview. I'm Usman Hayat from CFA Institute, and I'm joined by Dan Ariely, who is a professor of psychology and behavioral economics at Duke University, and he's authored a number of very interesting books. Welcome, Dan. Thank you. So let's start with what's the right way of thinking about money? What's the rational way? So the right way is all about opportunity cost. Every time you buy anything, a cup of coffee, a car, a house, you should think about what am I giving up now and in the future for this consumption. Um, the problem, of course, is that the number of possible other consumption is very, very large. So, you know, we have this expression, uh, a hard decision is like comparing apples to oranges. It turns out that comparing apples to oranges is very easy. You know, nobody is ever standing in front of the fruit bowl saying, I have no idea which one I want. It's because the opportunity cost is very clear when you say, do I want this one, the apple, do I want this one, the, the orange? But with money, imagine that you're thinking about something like, uh, should I buy a bicycle now or put that money in my retirement fund? It's a really difficult, uh, difficult decision. So thinking about opportunity cost is necessary to think well about money, but it's just not humanly possible. Interesting. It's not humanly, humanly possible. And what about the short-term versus long-term? Is that part of rationality? Uh, yeah. The short-term versus long-term is, is one of the things that makes money difficult. So money, uh, thinking about money and saving is difficult because it's about something concrete versus abstract. I want a bicycle now, retirement, right? What exactly am I getting in retirement? Um, but on top of that, even if you could say, hey, this bicycle right now will turn into a, you know, one month of rent at retirement, even if I had uh, a trade-off, uh, it's still now versus later. And now versus later is another thing we don't do well. You know, we overeat. We, we, we get tempted by what's around us at the moment. Um, and because of that, we uh, have what's called a present uh, focus bias. We just focus about uh, what's now, so we have a hard time thinking about the future. So money is tough, and on top of that, saving is extra tough. Ah, I see. So you mentioned the right way of thinking about money is to think about opportunity cost, but it's quite complex. And then there is added... No, not just yeah. quite complex. Almost, I mean, it's humanly impossible. I mean, even if you try to get a computer to try and simulate all the things that you're spending, it will be really, really hard to figure out. I see. So that's the theoretically rational way, but not the right. practically rational way. And then you added another layer of complexity, short-term versus long-term. That's right. So then what's exactly the irrational way? Give us an example or two. <laughs> so, you know, because it's so hard to think about money the right way, we think about it in multiple uh, wrong ways. Um, one of them is relativity. So imagine you're going to buy a car, the car is 30,000 euros, and the salesperson says, hey, would you like leather seats? It's 2,000 euros more. How would you think about that decision compared to a different decision? You're buying a chair for your house, and it's 500 euros, and the salesperson says, hey, for $2,000 more, euros more, you can get it in leather. In the first case, you would say, seems like a good deal. The second case, you would think it's terrible. Now, presumably, the value of leather is the value of leather. Hopefully, you sit more at home than you sit in your car. But the moment you spend 30,000 euros, 2,000 looks like a small amount. You're paying 500, 2,000 looks uh, almost, almost immoral. So that's one 
uh, one example. There are many, there are many other, other examples of how we use money. Um, uh, we tend to not think about decisions from scratch. We tend to do what is called anchoring. And anchoring is the idea that we look at our past decisions, we assume that our past decisions are reasonable, and then we just follow them. So for example, um, let's say you start buying, uh, I don't know, expensive gin and tonic. At some point you stop thinking whether this is the right thing or the wrong thing. You said, hey, I've done that before. Must be the right decision. Let me continue uh, doing it uh, again. Um, another, another very uh, strange decisions people have in housing. Housing is a really big, big decision. Now think about what numbers do people start with? Well, we have these calculators that tell people how much money they can borrow. So what do people do? They go to this calculator, they figure out what they can borrow, and then they put that number into the search and then to see what house they can buy. It doesn't mean that you should borrow the max. Like, where is this idea? But the calculator says this is the number. People kind of mindlessly take that number, plug it in, and then buy a house that is actually more expensive than what they can afford. So we anchor ourselves to a number which isn't really terribly re relevant for the decision at hand. That's right. It's an upper bound, right? But it doesn't necessarily the right number. Excellent. And earlier you talked about, you know, we focus on money in relative terms as opposed to thinking about it uh, in absolute terms. So we've discussed the right way of thinking about money, the rational way, you emphasize opportunity cost. Yeah. We talked about the wrong way and you gave us some nice examples to explain you know, how, what problems do we have. Is it possible for human beings to correct their behavior and move from irrationality to rationality? So, not without help. So, you know, imagine that every day I came to your office and I layered your desk with donuts. What are the odds that by the end of the year you would be a little chubbier? <laughs> it's, it's probably very high. Right? Um, but, but we don't have to lay your desk with donuts. Right? And I think the same thing with money. I think that money is actually incredibly hard to think about. And the question is, what tools are we going to give people to help them think about money? If we say that the human brain is just kind of designed to think about opportunity cost, if you just leave people to their own accord, they will do the right job, that will not happen. But if you say people are going to make mistakes, what is the kind of electronic financial advisor? What is the kind of electronic wallet? What is the kind of financial savings? How should we structure our checking account and savings account? I think if we thought about all of those mechanisms as a way to help people. I mean, just look at this room. We have lights, we have heating, we have chairs. We've designed all kinds of things to help us function. Uh, money is more difficult than you know, our physical challenges. But what are the help? What's the help that we get? What is the metaphorical chair and light and heating? And, and so on. I think we do need to design those tools that would help people to do better. Interesting. And what would be an example of such a tool? One example could be an electronic wallet that gets you to think about uh, other things that you might want to get. Right? So imagine a wallet that just before you went into Starbucks said, you know, um, if you keep on using money on this, you will not get money uh, for something else. To make them more aware of the opportunity cost. That's right. Or, for example, imagine uh, that your checking account did not just include one bunch of money, but it was already divided into your different uh, um, expenditures. So think about, uh, you make money, let's say your salary comes in, and your bank account looks as if you have a lot of money. But your rent is coming out tomorrow, and your student loans are coming the next day, and your credit card payment is coming the next day. You don't really have that money. You just look like you have that money right now. 
but the way we report it to people makes them feel that they have more money. So imagine that the, your bank account actually showed you how much money you actually have to spend on discretionary spending rather than the actual amount you just happen to be now because of the different timing of different transactions. I think tools like that would be very, very helpful. Yeah, it will help make people more uh, rational choices compared to irrational choices. And, now, and I don't yeah. think, by the way, I don't think we'll ever reach perfect rationality, but we'll, we'll do it better. We'll do, it, we'll do a better job. So we were discussing individual spending and savings decisions. If we move the conversation a little bit to institutional or professional investors making these bigger decisions, how can behavioral analysis make these guys make better decisions? Yeah, so I don't think that just because people start making uh, decisions in groups, they necessarily get better. I think some mistakes get different, right? Some mistakes go away, some new mistakes uh, come in. Uh, look, in 2007, 2008, we saw lots of institutional investors uh, panicking and behaving in, in terrible ways. It was not limited to, to individual investors. Uh, so I think understanding the role of emotions in decisions is centrally important. And you can ask the question, you could say, oh, let me not get panicked next time. It will not happen, right? It's kind of very natural, right? You see a snake, you're afraid, the market is dropping, uh, it will take the better out of you. So now the question is, what kind of mechanism you can create that would not let you act on your, on your impulses? So think about something like dieting, right? You know that if you'll have cookies at home, you'll eat too many cookies. So what do you do? You say, no cookies at home. Uh, are, and, and you're limiting your freedom by doing that, right? You're saying, I am limiting my freedom to have cookies by doing that. Imagine that we took investments and we say, we are going to create a rule that you are not allowed to sell things immediately. You have to have a process, it will take a month, you know, you, you, can't, you can't act on your emotions. Or we can say, you're not allowed to buy all in. I mean, you can do all kinds of things that will basically say, here's places where emotions come and get the best of people. Let's just make sure that it can't penetrate. And you know, from time to time, it might be a bad decision. It might not always be the right decision, yeah. but over on the whole, it should be better. So professional investors are also susceptible to some of the same biases, but- Look, there are people. Yeah, of course, but could this kind of analysis help with macroeconomic issues like, you know, the probability of a German bailout for Greece, could this, could this help? I think so. So, so if you think about politicians, uh, politicians, uh, again, are, are people, and when you're trying to predict what politicians will do, uh, you could think about decision uh, biases as well. Um, you know, uh, think about, for example, uh, when politicians decide to take actions versus not. Um, what, what kind of causes get people to be concerned with and, and not? Um, I'll, I'll give you a very different, uh, very different uh, example, but think about what's happening uh, these days with uh, terrorism in Europe comparing to, compared to what's happening in Syria. Right? So in Syria, I think the numbers are that about uh, 250,000 people have, have died, about uh, 12 million people have been uh, displaced. Um, but because it's such a huge tragedy and far away, uh, the, the world is really not uh, reacting in any, in any serious way. On the other hand, you have uh, tragedies that are much more closer to home, and even though they're, they're small in comparison, um, so of course the French should care about what's happening in France, but uh, the rest of Europe is, is caring differentially about those things. Now, uh, 
that's, that's not about investments, but if, if you think about that principle and you say, what gets us to act? What gets us to yeah. motivate? Under what conditions would mm -hmm. we, we take actions? I think understanding that we take actions because of an emotional appeal, not because this is important, would also help you understand and predict how politicians will make decisions. Being aware of our emotions. And finally, is this analysis more helpful with smaller day-to-day -day decisions or is it more helpful with larger purchases, larger investment decisions? I, th I think it's actually really helpful for small decisions and really helpful for very big ones. Oh. Um, so, look, when, when decisions are just very, very big, think on the individual level, you get news of a terrible diagnosis, cancer, something like that, we just shut down. This is when decisions get too big, we're just not able to analyze them in the right way. So I kind of think it's actually funny that small decisions we don't think a lot, um, middle-level decisions, like individual, like we, we buy a car, we spend a ton of time research. But when you get cancer diagnosis, people shut down and don't do the same amount of uh, research and so on. So I think it's kind of an um, inverse U function, that it will be, we're kind of the most irrational on the daily decision that we don't think about, and the huge decision that we're just overwhelmed and can't possibly grasp that. So we just shut down and just follow our gut intuitions. So it, it can help and it does help to be aware of our emotions and know what's the wrong way of thinking about money, what's the right way of thinking about money, so that we can be less wrong and more right. That was Dan Ariely with us. Dan, thank you for your time. My pleasure. And thank you all viewers for watching. Copyright 2016 CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.